Hi, everyone, and welcome to the COVID-19 Vaccine Show, the number one COVID show podcast in the world. If you search COVID-19 Vaccine Show or you search COVID-19, again, on Spotify, Mark Hayden comes up, Dr. Mark Hayden. So I'm excited to welcome the host, Dr. Mark Hayden. Dr. Mark, how are you? And uh, let's continue to rock and roll with this topic. But I guess really you want to jump into this whole thing about the vaccine for is, is soon to be approved for five to nine. Uh, this is getting younger and younger. When we, the first wave, we never vaccinated. We never vaccinated them ever. And the, the amount of cases for kids is very low. So I don't understand it. You know, they. Um, what can you do except shake your head? Right. Actually, people should be judged by their words. One of the things they brought out was that in the United States, I think. A hundred children. Had died in a certain age group, and it may have been this age group, five to 12. 100 children sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Right. During the whole COVID pandemic. Whoa, whoa, that sounds like 100 children died of, of COVID. Let's look a little bit closer to that, though. Remember, some children have leukemia. That's an, that's an immune disease, right? Right. How many of those kids had leukemia? Right. right. And they had COVID too. They had COVID with leukemia. Right. How many of those kids were 11 years old and weighed 300 pounds? Because right. they had literally abusive parents that were shoving food down their throat like they were farm animals. Okay. So show me pictures of normal children. Normal. I'm talking, they look like your next door neighbor. They're not abused. They're healthy. They have healthy skin. They don't have rashes all over them. They have a normal CBC. Show me pictures of those children and tell me how many of those children have died in the last month. They don't. They don't. What so they want to do always, is. So always you've said the vaccine should be for the most compromised. That's not right. for everybody. Yes. Now, you know, here's this thing about children. When you look at most of your children, and we're talking about not children with terminal diseases, like, you know, not all leukemia is terminal in, in children. And certainly there's high, high survival rates for some many childhood cancers and, and blood diseases. But if you, one of the reasons why you have children is that when you have children nowadays, you expect them to live like 50 years or you're hoping as a parent, maybe they'll live to 70 or 75, right? Don't, don't you have kids, right? Neil, but, how, yeah. many, how old do you want your kid to live to, Neil? For, forever, as long as they can live. Till well, I mean, how much would you expect? Would you expect him to have like 60, 70 year life expectancy? Longer than that, potentially, especially. Yeah, I mean, with, even if with, they live to 60 or 70, it's a good start, right? Yes. Okay. We don't know what the long-term effects are on these children. Right. We've never run long-term studies. And they're talking about your children getting a vaccine that they don't. How do they know what the effect's going to be? Now, here's the, the, the issue. 
because they come up with a number of 100 kids but won't show their pictures. Oh, we can't show pictures and information about the 100 kids that died because that violate patient confidentiality, right? Isn't, right? isn't that the argument? Correct. You just have to trust them to, to cherry pick the data. <laughs> right. That's what's called cherry picking. Right. You've got out of you probably have 20, 30, 50 million, well, not 50 million, you probably have at least 30 million children, roughly 25 to 30 million children uh, that are less than 12. And you can cherry pick out of them uh, deaths, 100 deaths, and say these 100 deaths over the last year justify vaccinating all these other kids with, with something what we don't know the long-term uh, safety data. Now let's talk about efficacy. Okay. Right. Let me tell you about the life of children in the United States. If mom and dad are sick, they may go to the doctor and get a COVID test. But if the children are in the same household and they, they don't show any signs and symptoms, they could have easily already had a natural infection and you never would have picked it up. Right. If the children are staying around grandmother and grandpa or in the household where other people are, are exhaling virus, their exposure to virus is much, much higher as the pandemic occurs. So the child today is much, much more likely to have been exposed to COVID than they were at the first of the year. Wouldn't right. you agree? Yes. Because basically we've been through a huge Delta wave where it's exhaled all over the place. How can you avoid it? And so then you're gonna to go to these children, many of which, if not most of which, have already had exposure to COVID. And you're gonna give them a long-term vaccine where you don't even know what the long-term consequences are. Exactly. And you know, the parents, they can tell themselves, you know, Katie Couric said it was good, or MSNBC, they said, ABC told them they were good parents because they got their children vaccinated. Maybe they can go out and, and put a banner on their car and say, I vaccinated my five to 12 year old. Maybe. But did that child have a right to understand? Do you think five to 12 year olds understand uh, the, long the virus transmission? No. What do you think, Neil? No. Okay, so if a five to 12 year old can't give informed consent, the informed consent would have to come from the parents, wouldn't it? Yes. Have they made any efforts to even educate the parents as to what? No, the maybe potential long-term effects could be from no. this. No, and they haven't even educated the parents on what that they, they their child will still be transmissible after they're vaccinated. Have they done that? No. So this. So how can, yeah. yeah. This so my point is, yeah, yeah, my point is this, Neil. How can a parent that's not informed by the CDC give informed consent for a child on something that has long term consequences? if they've never been educated. 
hey, where are the educational materials? They don't even see a doctor. Oh, oh, let me get this straight. Now they get to go to see the pediatrician. Right. Don't they get the pediatricians involved in, 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 the, in the vaccine for children? I think they do, right? Yes. But guess what the pediatrician does? How many pediatricians are willing to stand up for the rights of children and lose their career? They're not going to. That's right. They're going to pay their rent. They're going to pay their mortgage. They're going to pay their bills. They're going to they're going to do whatever Big Pharma tells them to do because that's what they do. That's right. So, so I mean, but, you, you know, hey, I want every parent out there who believes undyingly to put their trust in the American system, you go ahead and vaccinate your kids. You vaccinate every last one of them. You vaccinate every kid in your neighborhood if you can get them to do it. But I'm not telling them to do it. Right. There you go. Okay. So based on what you're bringing up with the, with, with the vaccine and everything, Mark, is that you should really choose not choose or not choose. They're looking at the percent of vaccinated. So the masks are being dis. Uh, are disappearing again in specific states, especially Pennsylvania. If that's happening, that now less and less people are wearing masks, do you see another wave coming or not? There are waves. The waves are going on all the time. And I'll give you this hint, Neil. I won't, I won't mention the party's name. But he has a, he's at a medical facility and he routinely checks people that get admitted to it. So he checks them at random. Everybody who comes in the door gets checked for COVID. Three out of the last 10 were positive. Doesn't mean they were even symptomatic. The number of positive people out there is enormous. But the severity of disease is right, very low right now. Because most people, even the people that are not vaccinated, have had exposure. Does that make sense? Yes. So because we've had so much exposure in the last 12 months, the number of people that are totally unexposed is very low. Okay, and their rebuttals to this is, but look at all the hospitalizations. Let me tell you about hospitalizations, Neil. Those people, a lot of times, are getting these antiviral treatments. Those are people that they, 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 they find out their friend had COVID, then they, they have COVID. Then they go have these panic attacks. And they say, oh, my God, I'm so afraid of death. I got to go down and get my antiviral treatments or else I might die. And, and they run down there and they beg the doctor. They beg them, please put me in the hospital. I might die. That's, that's the way they do. Oh, goodness gracious. And, 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 you know, maybe they get an antiviral. Maybe the antiviral helps them. Maybe it doesn't. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Right. I'm okay. not here to sell antivirals. No, no, exactly. So based on what you're seeing is do you, there are other ways, but based on so much transmission already that we are. I point out a prime example, Neil. We all have, most of us have access to the Internet. 
and we have access to TV. This Saturday, I want you to cut on Saturday football. I want you to look in those crowds and see all them people yelling and screaming in the bleachers without masks. Right. How can that occur without massive, massive transmission? Yes, for sure. It's going on. You're talking about, in other words, everything's okay as long as they can have a football game. I'll tell you about Alabama. You know, Alabama has all these racial problems, economic problems. Their, Their number one industry in Alabama is their prison system. And yet when they go to football games between Alabama and Auburn, they forget all about that. They're just so happy and everything is fine because they get to yell and scream at the Alabama and Auburn game and everything is fine. So for for their minds, everything is okay as long as football season. But this Saturday, look when you look in that crowd, ask yourself, if we were to randomly test the people in that screaming crowd, would it be 5%, 10%, 20%, 30% that would actually be positive? And I think the numbers would actually astound you. Then ask yourself, how many people in that crowd are federal employees that are going to get fired if they don't take a single Moderna or Pfizer or J&J jab in the arm? And does that make any sense no, if doesn't. they're inhaling it on the football field on Saturday? So but you will, there, will, there be another, will there be another strain that's more deadly of this virus? That's always a possibility. And now you have a virus that is being constantly swapped. You know, the vaccines do not stop transmission. The intramuscular vaccines, natural infections will stop transmission. Natural infections can be inhaled. Natural infections can be in the gut. We're the only people talked really talked about that last year. Six months before Fauci ever... I don't remember Fauci ever mentioned it or the CDC telling people, oh, you're still going to transmit after your vaccine. You're just going to have to wait and figure all that out. You know, but if you watch our show, you knew that. Right now, is can that can that virus mutate? Yes. Are there is there the technology. To manipulate that virus. And cause it to be far, far more lethal. Right. Yes. Not just one person, not just one university, not just one biotechnical institute. I would expect that there is a half dozen or dozen different places around the world that could manipulate that virus and have something that now, because it's being passed around person to person, could wipe out substantial percentages of the world population. And I'm not talking 4 million. I'm talking like 400 million, 500 million, a billion people. You could decimate the world population with the right toxin. Right. But hey, what should we be doing about it? You know, we should be emphasizing Zoom meetings. We should be working from home. Why should people even drive to a place? I mean, would you... What we're doing now, Neil, you and me, we're meeting. We don't have to drive and waste yeah, gas and energy. In car. So, so, but you see, see this forever. So, okay. Yes. One thing that is not that is not going to change. I think. Yeah. Two yeah. or three years from now, when you drive by the farm, 
you will see tractors without people mowing and tilling. You're going to see the trend to go all digital. That is not going to slow down. No, it's not. And that's the, and space travel's coming. We already know it's coming soon. Yeah. And soon we're going to be interplanetary. Okay. Well, I mean, telemedicine is going to, you know, all this shift is very important at reducing overall risk. And, you know, a week from now, we're going to have some things that show that you can do things using physics and science and chemistry. And that, that comes up next week. Things. That next week, next week on the show, this is coming up, right? That's right. Yes. Right. And I, I, I apologize for not having it ready this week. Hey, but we don't, we got one more week, but I think it's perfect to get to this kids thing and this discussion. Your prediction is next year, there won't be the, it'll be only a oral vaccine. There won't be intermuscular next week, next year. That's, that would be my, and I think they'll have to go to an, a live oral. They're going to get, they could easily use a weak version of COVID from the original. They could have cloned it out. And if you've already got COVID in your community, you're not going to stop it. So why not have a very safe live virus that is relatively non-toxic? Right. Because what we want, what you want, Neil, you don't want your neighbor transmitting to you. And that's fair. But the best way for your neighbor not to transmit to you is to have a infection. And the only safe infection, it's not a pulmonary infection, it's a gut infection. That's right. So right there, that tells you that what has been known from the get-go or should have been recognized, which we I advocated all the way back in May, April and May of 2020 was using live natural infection exposures, inoculation, vaccination to produce immunity. Wow. And yep. that will stop transmission. And then next week, big news. So again, Mark, you always finish out the show with the final say. You know, um, we don't do these shows. I don't expect to get rich. I've, I've had multiple patents in my time. Just And I've... You do. You should do what you do because it's important to do. You should really enjoy your job. You should enjoy your health. And you should be a thinking human being, not a slave. You need to get your information, not from corporate America. You need to get your information from all over the world, from different sources, and use your own mind and your own judgment to decide what's true and what's not. You know, I have taken live virus by mouth on numerous occasions, six, seven, eight. I've inhaled live virus to prove that I had it my own immunity multiple times for long periods of time. I've done experiments that many people might consider risky. Right. But I know my days are numbered. There will come a time when I will not be on planet Earth. I'll be dust. I'll be forgotten. My time will end. And your time will too. So I thank God for the opportunity to do good today. And all I have and all you have 
we don't have yesterday. We only have today. We only have the moments of good that we can do today. And this is today is all that we can claim that God has given us. We can't assume we have tomorrow. So, you know, and I say that and all the time I've been dragging my dragging and not getting my uh, other patent in. But, you know, I, I do want to get that other patent in because I, it's an important it's an important issue and it's useful information. OK, and we look. So, you know, my, my yeah. days are numbered and thank God for my, my life and thank God for your life and make the most of it. All right. Thank you. All right. We'll appreciate it. All right, guys. Again, this was the number one covid show podcast in the world the covid19 vaccine show take care guys like subscribe take care and we'll see you next week we're back to the neil haley show and transferable skills how you have certain skill sets in specific industries how you can take them to the next level based on that skill set my guest today is going to talk about it peggy kelly peggy thanks for stopping by how are you i'm great neil thank you for having me so great to be here it's fantastic that you're here. And I want to just kind of jump really quickly, Peggy, to your background. And then we'll talk about transferable skills and how that, you know, how certain skills in a specific industry can transfer them to, uh, to being in that same industry, but doing something different. What's your pack background, Peggy? Tell us about it. I am an event designer and producer. And so with that, I actually am a storyteller. And storytelling has to do everything from marketing to entertaining to um, connection, all aspects. And as we know, in 2020, the events industry had a very interesting turn. And that's what brought me to this topic of transferable skills. All right. Well, fantastic. So the these give us the story. Because as an event planner, when COVID hit, your life was turned upside down, wasn't it, Peggy? It stopped. I was literally sitting in Las Vegas at the special event, which is our industry um, conference. And everybody had their laptop on their lap. And all they heard was cancel, cancel, cancel. And there were 8,000 of us there. And we said, okay, what do we do? And we all took a breath. We took a step back. And then we had to look at what we do, how we do it, and who do we impact. And so with that, I went back to my roots, which is art and writing. And writing became marketing. Marketing became a skill that could be done for anyone, anywhere, anytime. Transferable skill. I ended up meeting a paradonist of all industries in the dental world, and he was doing a virtual event because in the beginning, I thought, I'm just going to flip to virtual. This is easy. I've got this. And I didn't have it because I'm not a virtual girl in the beginning. I became one over time. But in the meantime, I needed to help another industry tell their story. Okay. So then telling their story. So you, again, in the event planning world, your focus as an event planner, what kind of events were you planning? All types, right? I do social, I do weddings, and I do nonprofit. So I am what you would call a relationship-based, connection-based, community-based event producer. Got it. So from there, when you the virtual world didn't work as much, you got in a certain industry and then used those skills to transferable for other things then, right? Is that Absolutely. Kind of, so I mean, kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, in the events world, everybody thinks, well, it's a party. Well, in a relationship-based event, it, there's outcome, especially in the nonprofit world. 
And the nonprofits really had to keep on going. Weddings move forward, corporate move forward, but nonprofit is truly based, their, their existence is based on their events. So we had to come up with a, a, a new plan. Okay. So based on that new plan, the skills you used, you transferred them to where? So that's it, basically what we did is we put together a program that's called the perfect day. And it's when you bring your team together and say, what did we do yesterday? What are we going to do today? Who's in charge of marketing? Who's in charge of connection back to clients? And most important, what is our impact? And then to measure that on a daily basis so that you're basically building one day on top of the next day on top of the next day. You're also keeping your community together. Ah, and so you have to keep that community together, it sounds like. That was the key because people got felt lost. And whether it was within the events industry, but all industries felt lost. They didn't know where to go. And by bringing them together, especially in what we call a morning huddle, that kept them connected. It also gave them purpose. They had, they had accountability. And from that, they had ownership. And from that came success. All right. Fabulous. That's such uh, interesting information. What steps would you say for people to transfer for skills? What would you, what, what advice would you offer? I would go back to what you love. I love to write. I love to draw and paint. Writing became my avenue uh, in my pivot. You know, that was the word in the industry. You know, I'm going to plan to pivot and my pivot is to plan. And if you're a planner, in my case, it's about organization. That was my skill set. Take what you love and then go transfer it to another industry, at least for right now. In my case, my industry is starting to come back slowly but surely. But I learned so much over this last year um, of new techniques, of, of learning about virtual, right. about learning about speaking. Exactly. We learn new things when we're in, put in a different environment and say, okay, it's time to learn something new and just go for it. And, and be willing, be willing hard. to bump. You know, I, I, I always tell people, you know, that there's two things. We either win or we learn. There's no such thing as failure. Just win. And most of all, learn. There will be dips, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you drop. It just means that you that you dip for a moment and then you pick right back up, which we're doing again right now. All right. So, Peggy, best place we can find information and learn more about you. Where can we go? My website is TimelessCelebrations.com. It is an event site, although I also do speaking and coaching. And we would love to help you create your next special Timeless Celebration. All right. Well, thanks again for stopping by, Peggy. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And one of the kind of transformations I told myself is, you know, I was unhappy from COVID had, and I said, you know what, I want to drop weight. And I, and I tried different things. And then just one time I just said, I mind to it and said, do it. And it happened for me. And now I'm maintaining that weight and working out and trying to get in the best shape of my life at 48. But it took me time. 
and back and forth yo-yoing and going gaining weight or choosing not to. And I got to keep, I guess I got to watch this interview and say in two years, am I sitting here in the same boat? But my guest today is going to tell us it's not hard to lose weight. And why is that? Paula Fallon. Paula, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm great. And thank you so much for having me today. This is such an important topic, especially in light of what we've experienced during this pandemic. The average weight gain is 35 pounds and 75% of the American adult population is either obese or overweight. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's just so much information out there. People don't know where to start. And so they don't start. Right. I think I gained about 35, 40 pounds and I lost it. But again, I somehow came up with this crazy method and worked. But uh, it just it just happened based on the circumstance, the situation. And then once I lost it, I said, I'm not getting it back again. And I figured out certain situations and I hope to monitor to stay at that point. But why you say weight loss is easy. If you are the weight loss guru and you could help build millions and millions of people lose weight and tell them it's easy, you would be the biggest transformative person in the world. So why do you say that based on the topic? Well, number one, it's easier than you think when you have the support that you need, right? Um, Most of the people that I work with are very successful entrepreneurs and business professionals. They don't have time to do the research to figure out what they need to do and what they don't need to do. So kudos to you that you took the time to do that for yourself, because I know how busy you are. Um, But most people don't have the time and they don't have the time to research. What are the things that they should be eating? And also, we need to realize that each one of us is biologically unique. And what works for one person is not going to work for another. There's no magic bullet. So I like to think of my dear coach, Tony Robbins, and his Unleash the Power Within event that I have attended several times. You know, the statement, unleash the power within, right? It comes from within us based on who we are as people and what our life looks like. So it's going to be different for for me than it is for you. And people who are super busy don't know where to start. And that's why I love doing private one-on-one coaching because I get to know you as a client, understand what your lifestyle is, what the demands of your lifestyle are so that we can put a place in, a plan in place that is going to fit your life and it's gonna fit you personally. Um, It's easier than you think because it really just takes these three things. Number one, you need to understand why you're eating. Um, Perhaps you're eating because you're stressed. Maybe you're eating because you're bored or you're lonely, or maybe you're eating because you're feeling overwhelmed. I deal with that a lot with my clients. And so it's really understanding, are you eating because you're hungry or are you eating because of something else that's going on in your life? And then number two, it's having strategies in place where you can just pause before you eat. So that way you learn how to recognize real hunger triggers or hunger triggers that are coming from another place. And then the third thing is to have the tools that make making decisions about what you're going to eat super simple. 
My, my system is really simple and easy. I believe less is more and simple is best, especially people who with really, really busy people. Um, and that's the strategy that I take with my clients. That's see, that's great. And I think that you look at people with busy lifestyles that are going to eat out, they're going to do different things. They're not going to just have the same old, same old, have a personal chef, which is, you know, the best way. Right. And then a workout, a personal trainer you, that you're just constantly in the go, you're traveling, how to make the right decisions on what you eat, things like that. It's a challenge and you have to be disciplined, but ultimately you need the coach to do it. And I think that that's the thing that people don't understand. What makes it so special to hire a weight loss coach versus hiring a personal trainer versus, you know, doing your own research. What is the, what is your thought? Well, I, I focus on three things with my clients. I focus on the food that is a part of their everyday life. So that can change from one client to another. Every culture has traditions that are different from other cultures. So a lot of that, you know, comes into play when I'm working with my clients uh, certain foods are very important to my daughter-in-law who's Italian, right? And I'm German. So that definitely is a factor. And then we talk about movement. And again, because I believe that things need movement needs to bring joy into your life as well as helping you feel good and lose weight, that's going to be different for each person. And I loved when you mentioned people who travel for a living. You know, I travel a lot as well. And there are just little tricks that you can do that help you stay on track that are just so much easier than you can imagine. But most of us don't think about those things on our own. And then the last thing that we focus on is self-care. And most busy professionals do not practice self-care. And so we get into a little bit of that because all of these things are intertwined. And, you know, when you're working with a private coach, we're only focused on you. You can make bigger strides in less time when you're working with a private coach, because there's no extra noise outside of just focusing on what your needs are and how we can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Okay. Best place we can find info on you. You nailed it on what exactly what is keeping us from doing what we need to do. Where can we go, Paula? Thank you. You can go to paulafallon.com to find out more about me. If you want to jump on a call with me, you can go to chatwithcoachpaula.com and schedule a time and I'll look forward to chatting with you. All right. Thanks again, Paul, for stopping by. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Neil. It's been great. All right. You, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show and we'll be back in just a moment. Well, hi, everyone. And we're back here to the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to talk to uh, an historian, Nancy Bartlett. And we're going to talk about New Mexico and World War II, which I don't have a lot of knowledge in. I have an undergrad in history, but sometimes we do not learn everything in history that's in the books, especially. And certain people that write things and research things, new things are out there. So Nancy, thanks for stopping by. Can you tell me a little bit about your background first? My background, I'm a, histor a history major from Smith College. And I have a master's in international communications from the University of New Mexico. I uh, experienced World War II uh, in New Jersey when I was growing up. So I understand what happened during those days, even though I was young. And I've lived in Los Alamos for almost 60 years. And so I know more about the Manhattan Project and what happened here. I taught school in Japan 13 years after World War II and uh, for two years to uh, Japanese girls in an academy. 
and had many friends. Uh, and so I'm sort of a, in two cultures. I understand the Japanese way of thinking and the American way of thinking. And that's really important when one studies history. And see, this is fascinating when you talk about World War II and New Mexico's involvement, and then you bring up the Japanese. This is quite interesting. So I'm going to let you take this topic and I'll ask questions based on it. So specifically enough, when you talk about New Mexico and World War II, take us the setting and what was taking place at that time. Well, uh, most people most people think of uh, Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project, the atomic bombs, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, when they think of World War II. But New Mexico contributed much more than the atomic weapons. So I uh, talk about four stories of what happened uh, because we interviewed uh, the veterans who came back and these stories are intertwined. The one is about the New Mexico National Guard who were federalized and sent over to the Philippines to defend the air airport there at north of Manila. And they held off the Japanese for four months. And we had about 2,000 plus, there were other American troops, but they were using World War I equipment and they were getting their ammunition out of the boxes for the first time when the Zero planes started dropping bombs on the same day as Pearl Harbor. They were heroes because they kept the Japanese from attacking Australia as they attract, attacked other areas in the Pacific around the same time as Pearl Harbor. So there are heroes or POWs, only half came home. The other story is about the Navajo code talkers. The Navajo reservation is half in New Mexico and half in Arizona. And uh, they shortened the war by a year because of their unique code. And I teach the code and the code within the code that explains why the Japanese could never break it. These were just a handful of young men on both of those. And then, of course, there's the Manhattan Project that started out with, they expected 30 scientists, and it grew to be 6,000 or more people working on the atomic research. And then the fourth issue, which is I, I specialize in, is what happened in the Santa Fe internment camp, where Japanese-American men, uh, immigrants and American-born were sent to Santa Fe to a uh, a camp that initially housed 400 um, units for the CCC and then was expanded to 2,000. And it was the men that were sent there were along the West Coast. They were picked up because of the supposed threat that they would be if Japanese invaded the West Coast. And they were sent to the biggest secret in all of World War II, which is 30 miles away from the atomic bomb research. And so there are many, many ironies. There are many lessons one can learn from just knowing this, these facts. That's a long answer. I'm sorry. But I, 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 that's a good answer. I'm going to go to the Manhattan Project for the time allotted because I'm okay. interested in the Manhattan Project because to first explain to people who might not know what the Manhattan Project is and how important that research was to end World War II, which some people, it's, it's a controversial project, right? Kind of explain that for people to understand that. Well, 
the atomic dropping the two atomic bombs shortened the war definitely because the Japanese were not going to give up. They wanted to have a huge uh, battle in one of their islands and destroy the American uh, military. That was their dream and their hope, and they were not going to stop. The Manhattan Project was called that as a, as a code because it was started in, the, in New York City in the offices of the uh, uh, engineers, the army engineers. So it's really bizarre to have New Mexico and uh, uh, people with the title of a Manhattan Project. The, the scientists that were just exploring um, new, new information on, on how uh, the atom split, which put out energy, is just be happening. And the country started looking at, at this research because the Germans were ahead of us in that. And um, so initially there were many universities where the different scientists were doing independent research. And the United States decided to do it in one place. And that they chose Los Alamos, General Groves was put in place. He had just finished building the Pentagon and he was uh, chose Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, most people know about, what you call him Oppie. And Los Alamos was so remote from each coast that uh, it would be hard for uh, an attack on either coast to destroy our atomic research. The British had been working on the, uh, on the atomic research, but they came over with their scientists and their knowledge and combined it together. And in 28 months, we were able to develop a bomb that was uranium from Oak Ridge and plutonium from Hanford, Washington, that were brought to Los Alamos. And then Los Alamos set up in Tinian in the Pacific, the place where the atomic bombs could be inserted into the modified B-29s and be dropped on Japan. So that's fascinating. And a lot of people don't know the man when they think of the word Manhattan Project that New Mexico had something to do with it, right? It's, that's, it's, that's, yeah. it's one of the ironies. And Tinian, Tinian is a small island uh, next to Saipan. Uh, people know where Guam is in the Marianas. And it looks like a Manhattan Island. So it has, uh, it has street names that are the same as New York City. All right. So where can people find information on you, Nancy, and learn more about you and your, your knowledge of New Mexico and stuff like that? Where can they go? I have a website, nancybartlett.com or www.nancybartlett. And I have a book out that I'm upgrading. It's called Silent Voices of World War II. When, and the original book says, When Sons of the Land of Enchantment Met Sons of the Land of the Rising Sun. But people get, that's a tongue twister, so we're changing it to Silent Voices of World War II, uh, Fierce Encounters with New Mexico's Fierce Encounters with the Japanese. And that should be coming out, I hope, in January or February, uh, the upgrade. Excellent. 
Such great information, Nancy. I appreciate you stopping by the Neil Haley Show. I learned something today. I always learn things when I interview people, but when it's involving history, especially the Manhattan Project, this is one that I know will be one that uh, I will learn, will bring up all the time when we bring up the Manhattan Project in conversation. So thanks again for stopping by, Nancy. Thank you for inviting me, Neil. And I could love to come back and talk about was the second bomb necessary? Okay, definitely send me some of that information. I'll, I'll definitely consider it because it's a great topic. So thanks again. Thank for you time. so much. I All right. appreciate it. You're, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And you know what? When we talk about how to grow your business, there's, there's seeds before anything starts. We've talked about on some of the shows this week, small businesses. We've talked about everything from entrepreneurship. But when you're planting that seed, what do you do? So I'm excited to welcome the program, Lori Brown. Lori, how are you? Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. So Lori, tell us your background and we're going to go and say, okay, I want to start a business today. How am I going to grow it so that it becomes an income level for me that I could quit my day job or I could use it as a side hustle, but let's go first to your background. Okay. I'm a registered nurse as well as an attorney and I help people grow their business on solid legal ground. Okay, awesome. So let's just jump right into the topic, how to grow your business. What's the first steps and strategy in doing that? Well, I always say build the plane as you fly, because if you're still working a regular job, you can still plant all the seeds and get everything going so that it's ready to take off when you're ready to end your job. Um, there's a lot of steps you can take. You can um, de determine what kind of entity you want to be. You can set up the policies and procedures for the practice. You can figure out um, what type of practice it's going to be. You can figure out packages and pricing, and you can determine who your market is. Interesting. So kind of that planning phase is very important to look at before starting anything else. So what kind of planning do you recommend for people to kind of do to create a checklist? What are, what are those, that thought process? Um, well, I actually do have a checklist for business owners. It's primarily for nurses. It's called the nurses legal business checklist. Um, but there's a lot of steps that you need to take. It depends on what kind of a business owner you are. If you're a professional, you want to make sure you have malpractice insurance and your licensing, and it allows you to do that. Um, you can also determine what kind of entity you want to be to get the best tax advantage for your business. Either LLC or a sole proprietorship, that type of thing based exactly. on the circumstance, right? Right. And each entity has its own benefits. Exactly. And it's depending on how much work, how much money you're going to bring in and what's going to be the best tax situation, right? Exactly. Especially when October 15th for people that are filing their taxes late uh, extending their taxes. These are things to look at, especially before you get to that point. So you understand things and understand the tax thing. So that's a huge part of the checklist is the money I'm going to make. And so what you work with and you said nurses, what kind of business is that? Explain that to me. I'm just interested for education wise. There's actually 101 businesses nurses can start depending on what they're good at. So they can do teaching, consulting, um, coaching, they can do home health care, they can do elder care, they can do staffing agencies. Um, nurses are so burnt out right now, they're looking for something else. So they're, and they basically, they're the, it's their business. They're not answering to anybody else. They're the license, right. using their license and they're getting contracts or getting into different places, working as themselves instead of an entity, correct? Right. 
Right. And right now, if they go to a job, the patients come with the room versus when they are on their own, they have to get their own patients. So it's a shift in their mindset in terms of you get to be a nurse, you just have a different type of patient, depending on whatever business you choose. The marketing is interesting for that, right? It's a huge thing, but trusting the big business is it's hard to say, okay, I'm used to just going to the hospital. I'm used to, I want to hire my own person. So you really have to understand marketing, business cards, all these things to make you differentiate yourself with other people who have decided to do the same thing. Right. 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 And you're looking at down the line, you're expanding from not just nurses to you said, right. I work with, um, health and wellness office-based professionals to help them leverage their business. Now they're the ones that are working all the time in their business. They don't think anyone else can do what they do. And so they want to change that and they want to make more money and work less. And that's huge. And so coming up with those things, but I think it's interesting to think about in this day and age where you don't have to be stuck in this thing of of the age of COVID. You can be do your profession, but have the flexibility and it's your own business. Is there risk, the risk involved? And that's why, again, you practice law on this too, right? There are risks. You don't have the right uh, licenses in place, insurance in place. You got to purchase that insurance. Those are the types of things you help people with, right? Right. As an employee, everything was provided for you, but now that you're on your own, you have to make sure you have everything in place so that you're protected, your assets are protected and your patients are protected. And well, I remember I had private practice liability insurance when I was a tutor and I would go into homes and different things. I had that insurance for my tutors as well, because it was so important if something, God forbid, happened when you're, you're insured, where you work for a company and you're an in-home nurse. It's a different story than when you work as yourself as an in-home nurse, you better have the proper insurance. And it's not too expensive, is it? It's not like a huge break the bank kind of. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Especially, you know, for nurses and health and wellness professionals, it's not like the physician insurance. So what do you define health and wellness professionals? See, we're really breaking this down. Some interesting things. There's a ton of them out there that you can send from this interview and send it out to people. To, to you're educating them. And that's fantastic. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. I work with office-based professionals such as acupuncture, chiropractor, uh, natural medicine, functional medicine, um, anything that has an, any person that works in an office that's working all the time, doesn't make it home for dinner with their kids, but wants more of a life, but to make more money. And they feel like they're the only ones that can do it. And so I help them change their mindset from a commodity to the, the patient interaction to um, broaden how they can take care of that patient, providing more, but again, less of your time. I never would have thought there was a marketplace in that area. And, and, and you really could kind of expand that to anyone down the line and take some of the things, if you're listening to this radio show or watching this YouTube video, that if you are practicing as a tutor, or if you're practicing as an education professional, you're in an occupational therapist or different things, you can do the same things by learning the step-by-step process that Lori offers and kind of tweaking it for your profession. So it's always great to look at all those things because of growth and you started with nursing and now you're expanding to other things. And that's fantastic. What is your ultimate goal for your business to teach people? Yeah. Well, I must tend to be a serial entrepreneur. I have an active law practice doing professional licensing defense with healthcare professionals. Um, I have Empowered Nurses, where I teach nurses to be business owners, and then it's now going to be Empowered Practices, where I've expanded not just nurses, but to other healthcare professionals, office-based professionals. 
congrats on the success. Where can people find information on you? Get that checklisting stuff. Where can they go? Sure. Um, for nurses, go to empowerednurses.org. It's past tense, empowerednurses.org. And for um, empoweredpractices.org, it's the same thing, empoweredpasttensepractices.org. And at empoweredpractices.org, you can take my quiz on, do you have the perfect practice? Because if what areas are you missing to make your practice perfect for you? Thanks again for stopping by, Lori. Appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome to the show Lori Lyons. And Lori's going to teach me marketing made simple, because again, the thing is, uh, Lori, that marketing is something that everyone makes complicated, and it's not complicated. And the reason people make it complicated is there's so many layers to it, right? Correct. And Neil, thank you for having me. But yes, it is people, their minds get blown and they, their throat closes up. And, you know, when you talk about marketing and it's like, no, make it simple, take it back. You know, let's, let's talk about the three things that make it simple for you. And then everything feeds off of that. Keep it simple. So how do we keep it simple? Because I mean, I sometimes in marketing, because I do multiple things for my agency, I, everything that it could just be, it comes so overwhelming for somebody that doesn't understand what I understand. And that's the problem because. Yeah. And it's not, you know, and the interesting thing is, is marketing hasn't changed over the decades, the way we market has, but marketing itself, it's still the same principles as it was, you know, 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, even, you know, when, when the first ads came out. So my thing is, you know, take it back to the three core. You've got your right audience your right message at the right time and everything feeds off from that. So once you take, take your message back to those core, who do you talk to? What do you tell them? And when do you tell them and how often that's it? That's what marketing is. What makes it so complicated is all the tech and all the stuff and all the moving pieces that people think that they have to do and all the complications. It just all depends on the person, right? If you're looking at an individual person in marketing versus a uh, business versus a, you know, corporations totally different but uh, yeah, absolutely those three things those three yeah. things but totally different and a lot of times people miss the components that it what works well for somebody else is not going to work it's not one size fits all thing marketing absolutely it is not one size fits all and it's not one size fits whatever is the the soup of the day either um, you know and take social media for example Nothing can get more complicated than social media. And what I tell people is social media is the soundbite. Your website is the full story. So, you know, if you, if you try to be on all the social media platforms at all the same time, it all depends on who your ideal client is and where they hang out and what they're, what platforms they're on. If they're not, you know, an 18 year old gamer or somebody that's looking for skincare on YouTube, maybe YouTube isn't the best place for you. Exactly. Maybe you need to go to LinkedIn if you're if you're talking to corporate people or to business people. You know, um, Instagram may not be for you if you're not in a visual media. Heaven forbid, that's heresy that Instagram isn't for everybody. So it really depends on where your ideal client is. That's true because a lot of times you're right. It is heresy. It being like people think one place is going to work. One place will work for somebody else. Another one that I bring, I brought up in the last few interviews is clubhouse. Clubhouse was the place for me to be six months ago, eight months ago. It's not anymore. And it's a place I go to just like I 
I'll go to every social media platform, but I don't spend the time I did before on it because you kind of identify where do you want to go as a business and where do you want to go and who do you want to see? And you're saying to yourself, don't put your eggs in one basket and things. And that's where you have to diversify, but also find out what works well for you. And that's looking at the conversion, right? As a marketer, right? When you're talking about the three, the, the three R's marketing, basically, if you're not going and you're not succeeding using those three R's and getting conversions and sales, then you basically need to change your plan, right? Change your strategy. Yeah, it's, it's that old, basic old return on investment. What are you getting the best return up and where? And if Clubhouse is not where you're getting a return on, except for a time suck, then that's not the place <laughs> for you to be. But it's interesting because one thing I think Clubhouse has done is it's identified some good markets. One of my good markets is entrepreneurs over 50. And there's a lot of rooms for entrepreneurs, especially female entrepreneurs over 50. And all of a sudden, it just seemed like everybody was converging there. And it's like, Ooh, you know, you felt like you were taking pot. You know, they were, they were like, everybody was out there. And it's like, where'd they all come and from? They and, they all disappear. and then they disappear. So that's the yeah, thing. Exactly. That and what's now will work now versus later. And if you find your magic thing, which is LinkedIn, stay on LinkedIn. Don't jump on right. Instagram just to be on Instagram. It's not worth it unless you're going to just say, I want to do it for certain branding reasons. So Lori, exactly. best place we can find information on you and learn more about you. Where can we go? Yes, my website is Igniting Your Business, but I have a gift. If you want to, to find out more about your messy marketing, go to messymarketing.com and download my gift. All right. We appreciate you coming by, Lori, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> 